Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to live in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimum carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck, with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future Vintage over Future Garbage and Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that firmly believes that those little tin needle threaders are one of the most important inventions in human history. I'm your host, Amanda. Guys, we made it. We survived the election. We ate a lot of pizza. Some of us, I'm not saying who, may have consumed cakes directly from the packaging, and we drank enough to finally fall asleep. I feel hope for the first time in a long time. That said, we have a lot of work ahead of us, and I mean a lot. So we can't go back to endless brunches and apolitical cuteness, and we must hold this new administration accountable and be just as critical as we were of, you know, you know whose administration. But it feels good to know that our hard work has some open doors to kind of walk through now, you know? I feel like the potential is limitless. Today is the 30th full-length episode of Close Horse, and wowza, it's like a mega episode. No, not a MAGA episode, a mega episode. I couldn't find a place to break this conversation in half, which is normally what I would do, but there just wasn't the right point. It was going to be like a weird asymmetrical break or else you would be confused about why I broke it there. And so you know what? I was like, hey, let's just release it all at once. I'll be talking with Mary, a sewing expert, instructor at the New York Sewing Center and designer slash owner slash operator of Susan New York Design. We're going to talk about her experience as a corporate designer, the importance of sewing as a necessary life skill, and her vision of a world in which we all learn to sew. With an important detour through the history of home economics education and why we need to bring it back. Before I continue, it's time to thank the new Clothes Horse patrons. Guys, I still didn't get my triangle or even a cowbell, so I could be like, ding, 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 ding. I'm going to work on that, okay? Swear, it's on my list. Okay, the patrons. First up, Toby Moore of Lowland, a vintage store based in Oregon. You know I love Oregon. Her shop has a super cool sort of modern yet feminine yet minimalist vibe. I want everything on her site, which you should check out for yourself at shoplowland.com. 
Side note, my favorite aunt is named Toby, and she was always like the fun aunt. We all have one, right? Or at least I hope we all have one. I guess she's actually my great aunt, but she's not much older than my mom because she was my great grandma Pauline's quote, change of life baby, as they used to say. Grandma Pauline let my grandma Sandy and Aunt Janice pick her name, and they chose Toby, which is an excellent choice. Although she did say that she was accidentally assigned to a boys' gym class in her first year of high school. That made my aunt and my grandma laugh. It still makes them laugh decades and decades later. Also, Toby sold Avon for a long time, and she almost always drives a convertible. So in summary, Toby's are pretty rad. So thank you, Toby. Thank you for supporting Close Horse. Next is Elena Ketwig, who is another Oregonian. You, I tell you what, Oregon coming in strong for Close Horse. She and I actually have a lot of mutual friends, so I've been able to watch her very cute baby grow into a super cute and stylish little boy, and I know she's a kick-ass mom. She sent me the most amazing message, and I want to read it to you. Love your podcast so much. So well-researched, thoughtful, funny, and interesting AF. I'm so rooting for you, and I hope this starts making you enough money to not have to interview for bullshit places. You're a gem. So I read this message first thing in the morning, and it just like sent me out of bed, ready to seize the day. So thank you, Elena. When someone rad tells you that you're rad, it's the best feeling ever. If you would like to support Clothes Horse and me, please learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll share that link in the show notes, but you can also find it linked at the official podcast website, clotheshorsepodcast.com, and on our Instagram, at clotheshorsepodcast. Are you following the show there yet? Because we've been building a pretty strong community of super rad people there, so you don't want to miss out. If you elect to support the podcast via Patreon, you'll receive all kinds of cool stuff like our weekly extra credit reading newsletter, which last week it was all about Bath and Body Works. You'll also get exclusive episodes. I'm actually working on one right now about Victoria's Secret. And you'll also get cool swag like buttons and stickers. And you know what? If you can't support financially, hey, that's totally fine too. Just listening, recommending the show to others, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, All of this is incredibly supportive. So, hey, thank you for listening and giving me your time. Okay. I'm not going to talk too much more because, like I said, this is a long episode. But I do want to set some background for my combo with Mary. So, let's talk about sewing. I set out to find just how many Americans knew how to sew in 2020. And, well, you know, I couldn't find that number. Like, anywhere. But then I thought, hey, I know we have international listeners out there. Hi, international listeners. So why am I focusing on the USA? So let's talk about the UK. I would expect that their numbers would be a fair representation of sewing versus not sewing in the US, Canada, and Australia as well. According to a study by the British Heart Foundation as part of the Big Stitch campaign, Almost 6 in 10 UK residents are incapable of sewing confidently, with some unsure of how to sew at all. 33% of survey participants said that they never learned how to sew in the first place, which just hurts my heart. Half of British people are forced to ask their moms 
for help sewing and 16% have to ask their grandparents because their moms don't even know how to sew. But wait, there's even more. A quarter of those surveyed can't even sew on a button properly. 40%, four in 10 people, cannot alter the length of their pants, which to be fair is, is kind of a challenge. And a quarter, that's 25% for you percentage holics, they cannot even mend a rip in their clothes. Even worse, you want to hear something dark. <laughs> 16% of the people surveyed said that if they lost a button, they would just buy a new item of clothing rather than fix it. And that really freaks me out because research indicates that extending the life of a garment by just nine months reduces the carbon, waste, and water footprints of that garment by 20 to 30%. That's a lot. I mean, Imagine the impact we can make on the planet just by learning how to mend our clothing. Globally, customers miss out on nearly 500 billion, that's billion with a B, of value each year by throwing away clothes that they could continue to wear. Once again, what a huge loss that could be remedied with just some basic sewing skills. More than half of those people that were surveyed wish that they could sew and 60% said that they would love to learn this essential money-saving skill. And surprisingly, because, you know, sewing and toxic masculinity are usually not very good friends, 55% of the men surveyed said that they would be interested in learning how to sew. Because, you know, sewing will save you money and make your life infinitely less stressful. Today, we're going to talk a lot about why sewing has fallen out as a common and useful skill, because it used to be something that, at the very least, almost all women could do. We're going to talk about the repercussions of this shift, both ecologically and socially, and how we could turn all that around. So not all hope is lost. All right, let's get into it. Today, we're being joined by Mary. Mary is an expert on sewing and lots of other things, and she's going to introduce herself in a moment. Mary and I are internet friends, and we met because of the podcast. She basically sent me an email, not even trying to get on the show, just to say, hey, here's some stuff about sewing and information about that that might be helpful for you. And I was like, whoa, 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 this is all so fascinating. Do you want to be on the show? So... Here she is. Uh, Mary, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. And I was so thrilled to hear back from you right away. It like made my day. Um, I've worked in the fashion industry for a little while. I uh, wanted to be a a fashion designer since I was like 13. And I uh, went to FIT for fashion design, worked in the fashion industry for about seven years, and then stepped away to kind of start doing freelance slash my own little design project which is still alive today in a very uh, small way. But as you can imagine, trying to start my own little brand required a lot of financial support. So I have had Mm -hmm. many, many jobs to support that. (laughs) One of the main things I do now is uh, teach sewing and drawing classes. And that has really changed my view of the future of the fashion industry and just the value of learning this craft outside of the fashion industry. 
100%. Today we're going to talk about Mary's experience as a designer for like a big company and like the waste and just ridiculousness involved in that. But then we're going to talk about sewing as this skill that so few people know now. I mean, it's almost like a lost art and it's, I think it's at the core of our need for fast fashion and also why we don't understand the true cost of clothing because we, we think like robots sew our clothes or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If, if we think about it at all. (laughs) I think most people don't. It's just like they magically appear. And once again, we're going to talk about this later, but I definitely have talked to people in my family, some friends who don't work in the industry, who assumed that everything is automated now. So they assumed that much like when a car is being built on an assembly line, it's mostly robotics building the car, that somehow machines were just making our clothes. And I'm like, well, sewing machines are involved, but there's like such a human element. Like there's people there. So (laughs) it's just a lot different than other industries. And I think there's just not a lot of education around it. So let's talk about being a fashion designer. One thing you, when you, when we began to talk is that you said, you know, one thing that really, I don't know, bothered you, stood out to you was the incredible amount of waste that was involved in just the day-to-day operations of designing clothes, not even making clothes, just designing them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It would really weigh on me and it would just be overwhelming sometimes. And I have like a very specific example that really kind of sums it up. So I was working at one company that actually wasn't fast fashion, but basically the design team knew that the head designer wouldn't truly decide the concept of the collection until maybe a month or so before the show. Uh, However, as part of the overall schedule of the season, we, meaning the handbags and small leather goods team, as well as the other teams, would have to put designs into work by a certain date according to the schedule and get back prototypes to get approved by the CEO, who, of course, as you have talked about before, isn't like doesn't come from a design background, usually comes from a finance or tech background, who is kind of signing off on, you know, stuff that they would never buy. So, mm-hmm. so like all of that would mean like there would be a design review with the CEO early on in the season, multiple months before the show. And to prepare for that, Like, let's talk about just like the three to five days preparing for that meeting. Uh, We would have to make presentation boards to show him all of our designs that we've come up with for this season in all of the colors. So picture like one handbag design and imagine that being made in four different colors. So every printout of each color has to be really accurate to the color. And so we would be printing out like pages and pages to and keep photoshopping oh. it to make sure like we would print it and then we would check it to the swatch and then be like, oh, a little more blue. And then we would print it and check it to the swatch. So like <laughs> that's one color of one bag. And I just want to jump in here and say that you are totally reminding me of something that I haven't thought about for a while. Everywhere I've worked, 
there's like a huge fancy color printer, right? That's for like the, (laughs) primarily for the design team. But like, to be honest, buying is using it too to print out things we're ordering, like photos for like, you know, presentations and stuff. The amount of paper waste is like in. Yeah. Because these printers are like normally surrounded on the top, (laughs) on the floor, in a huge, huge recycling bin with just paper that someone printed and was like, this isn't right. I printed this by accident. (laughs) Uh, This is like you were saying, the color's still not looking right. Let's print it 57 more times. Or, oops, I thought 20 people were coming to this meeting. So I printed 20 packets, but then only two people came. (laughs) I mean, like, and all like really high end color printing, except for one place where I worked where we only had black and white printer, but like the amazing amount of waste just there alone. Like when I think about walking into that printer area and it's every single job I've had, it makes me sick. Yeah, it's really bad. (laughs) Like, and you just don't have time to worry about it. Like, you can't no, even let yourself no. think about it because you're just like, I got to get this to this meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Or you have some boss who is like, I wanted this packet double-sided and you didn't do oh. that. So you have to do it all <laughs> over again, you know, and you're like, all the, here's like 100 more pieces of paper that went in the trash or people who print out something for one meeting that never gets looked at again. Sometimes people don't even take it with them. Yeah. It's just. Oh my God, the fashion industry kills so many trees. I'm sure this happens in other industries too, but I just feel like it's really egregious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. That that could probably be said for many design industries, but I mean, fashion for sure. And that's exactly it. Like all of this for a meeting that would be over in like an hour and then, mm-hmm. and then you don't need those things anymore. It's just getting thrown out. And so, so yeah, so that's just the printing. But you know, it... it as you can imagine, any lead up to a big meeting requires like late nights. And and so the whole team would be working super late at night, which meant the company would have to buy us all takeout food. There would be just tons of takeout food. Ugh. And that's for every like the, I'm just talking about my department, which was handbags. But there's still shoes and jewelry and women's wear <laughs> and <laughs> um. And so, yeah, there would be all this takeout food and like something I discovered actually early on is that even if there are recycling bins in the office, like that doesn't mean they get recycled. Oh, it, oh yeah. no, no, no. I agree. I'm always the recycling police <laughs> at my job and where I, as I've become more confident about who I yeah. am, I'm kind of like hey, so I noticed that you put a salad in the recycling bin and now nothing in there can be recycled. Uh, or, you know, I saw that you put this huge piece of styrofoam in the recycling bin. It's not actually recyclable. Conversely, you put 40 packets of paper in the regular trash. Oh. Like, you know, like I'm that person, like nicely, nicely. Yeah. But yes, there were – everywhere I've worked, there's been a million recycling bins that are mostly empty, strangely enough, despite all of the stuff going through that office. Yeah, yeah. And then even if everyone does it right, it usually gets lumped in with the trash. Yeah, yeah. There's just no – there's like no accountability or education around it. And I mean, to be honest, everyone's so busy and stressed out. Like the last thing you want to think about is which bin to put your salad yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. Like you just want to go home after a certain point. Yeah, you're like, I don't care about anything yeah. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Like after a crazy week of late nights at the office, yeah. And like, yeah, totally. Yeah, and so like, 
you know, we eat all our takeout food and then we work some more. And then it's so late that like no one's taking the subway home. Every single person is getting an Uber home. So that's like almost a whole building. I mean, I guess maybe the, you know, tech support guys aren't lumped in with this, but, you know, multiple floors of a building of people who would have taken the subway home are now taking cars home. And I just feel like, yeah, like all of these things just keep piling up and they might sound like not the hugest deal individually, but when it's like all of them together, just for one department, for one company in one location on like a couple of days, like times the whole fashion industry, we haven't even gotten to the prototypes and we're just... (laughs) It's true. It's tr- we haven't even gotten to the prototypes or even like sample yardage. We're like just drawing some pictures right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This is just the drawing part. And going back to us knowing that the head designer wouldn't actually decide on anything until months later, all of this effort going into this early design review, we knew none of these designs were going to stay in the final cut and so prototypes would get made and like sometimes it's a full bag that maybe would you know get canceled and and find its way into a sample sale and sometimes it's like a mock-up panel that you can't use for anything Mm -hmm. and no matter what like none of this stuff is making the cut like this is just we are just spinning our wheels and yet you know leathers are being dyed and uh you know, hardware is being made mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that stuff is the least <laughs> eco-friendly, you know, all those leather chemicals and those dyes and like the shitty metal they use for the cheap hardware. Oh, and the treatments to the hardware. Cause sometimes it's like, Oh, we want this antique, mm-hmm. you know, it's gold right now. Can we make it silver and vice versa? It's too shiny. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in those meetings. Yeah. It's like so specific. And you know, treating the these shitty metal pieces to look fancier is very toxic. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just such <laughs> to a look. It's bummer. like it's all it's all about like making it look fancy, right? Even if it's not. Yeah, yeah, and it is a bummer. It is a bummer. Is ever? I mean, I don't know. Maybe everyone's listening right now is already getting depressed. I feel like <laughs> we're taking the magic out of fashion, but I feel like it kind of has to happen. We're gonna put it back in later in the episode. Yes, totally. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't get too depressed. There's hope around the corner. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, I had to kind of see this, you know, darkness to like realize that, you know, some major changes needed to happen. And I kind of needed to start changing it myself. Like, you know, if if this is really depressing, it's like, okay, well, then I'm just not going to dedicate my time to it anymore. Don't get me wrong, like, that was a great job. I was very grateful to get that job at all. But, like, yeah, after a while, when you're working 60 hours a week just to make, like, fancy um, cell phone cases that you know are going to be obsolete the next time a new iPhone comes out, like, like, you're like, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) I mean, that... God, the cell phone case one really like gets me like I like oh I get like a chest pain thinking about yeah. it because you know like you can go to stores of all sort of like levels of fanciness if you will and there's everyone's gotten into the cell phone case game I mean this started like ten years ago you know with like the era of smartphones and 
they don't last, whether they're $5 or $500. And of course, if you get a new phone, it doesn't work anymore. And I think about all the charging cords and cases. And I mean, even those like little charms that people used to put on their phones or the pop sockets. Is that what they're (laughs) called? When you put on the back of the handle? Like, guys, none of that is recyclable. No. And it's hella plastic. So it's just all sitting in landfills. Like our smartphones alone are, I mean, and I'm not dissing them because I can't imagine living without mine at this point, but they are such generators of trash. And I do think about the people who design phone cases. That you know, I me. know multiple people who design phone cases. It's so funny. It's like a job, right? Yeah. And that has to be hard because even for me, working in both clothing and accessories, I would get depressed sometimes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. A coworker once turned to me pretty early in my career and said, do you ever think about all the garbage we're making right now? And I'm like, I can't. I can't let myself think about that or I will no. stop coming to work. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't say that right now. Yeah, I don't say that here because your career will be over. Everything we make yeah. is great. It's the best, you know. Yeah. But I do think about, you know, talking about all the samples, right? All the samples that get made. I think it's important f- for listeners to understand that in the best case scenario, meaning that the best version of a product is coming to market for customers to buy, it has been sampled three, four, five times because the factories are making a sample. They make it in a special sample room. It's not made on the factory floor where everything else would be made. Yeah. It's expensive because like one person's literally making it from available materials. So it's not even necessarily what it's going to be in the end. It might be a different color because that's right. what they had. The sample's going to come. You're going to look at it. The odds of that first sample being on point are pretty much zero, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not going to happen. It's always no. crazy. It's always disappointing. I remember the I began my career in shoes. I sent out all the stuff for development and the first samples that came back, I was – I cried a little. And my boss was like, no, don't worry. This is like – this is oh. how it goes. You'll get used to it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, because I feel like I did something wrong. Everything is so terrible. But – Oh, no. You know, you're you're like, okay, saw the sample. Here's like one million notes about what needs to change. Bring it – send us another sample. That one's maybe going to be a little bit closer. At that point, you might start – if it's like shoes or clothes, you might start talking about fitting it. There's going to be another sample after that, maybe another one, another one. But that's in the best case scenario where you're not moving super fast, right? Yeah. The Mm -hmm. super fast version is you get a sample and you're like, oh, this is complete garbage. Uh, Make all these changes and just make it. I don't need to see the next sample. The production might come and be super disappointing, but you kind of got to push it to the floor anyway and get the customers to try to buy it. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, we're looking at enormous amounts of waste because – these samples are not like first quality, meaning like what you would expect to buy in a store because they're not like built to last. It's more like to represent what the product is going to be. So you might be able to buy this stuff at a sample sale. It's not going to last you a very long time. Uh, If it doesn't get bought at a sample sale, it's going to get donated to some sort of charity and who knows where that will end up. Right. Uh, A lot of places I've worked, only employees could come to sample sales anyway, you know? Oh, yeah. So everybody would have like crazy amounts of this weird sample (laughs) garbage at their house. (laughs) But there'd still be just like epic amounts left behind. Like just so much stuff. Who knows where that went, you know? Right. Uh, So it's it's very wasteful to – all these samples become very wasteful. But then again – 
if you're doing the faster version where you're like, okay, we're going to look at this one sample and we're going to give you that whole list of notes, but we're going to say go right into production, you run that risk that the production is not going to be that great or what you wanted. It's going to go into the stores and no one's going to buy it. And then you're having to like donate or destroy it. So there's no win there. It's just waste all around. I know. Yeah. And that's just how it's been for years and years. And I guess I will say that I've been hearing more and reading more about these design programs on the computer where you can kind of um, mock up a first proto like digitally using all these like 3D design programs and, you know, uh, digital pattern making, like all this stuff that is getting moved to the computer and not like physical examples um, I know all of that is is being developed to kind of remedy this because this is one of the huge problems, just like the amount of waste from that comes from the development stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, I was looking for like a fashion design program for the middle school kids I teach um, in the sense that like just something where like maybe there is like a way they can like color in like clothing drawings online if they didn't have like a sketchbook and colored pencils and all this stuff and what I kept finding instead were all of these like fashion design programs for like digitally mocking up first prototypes and like they were very accessible I kind of thought that they would be these like insanely expensive software things that you had to be a huge company to buy but actually Mm -hmm. I think it's getting accessible very quickly. So that is promising. That makes me feel hopeful. And I would hope that a lot of retailers and brands would adopt that because these samples are expensive. Like that's the thing. They're not the same cost as the regular inventory. Like it's like five, 10 times because like once, like I said, one person is making it in a special sample room. And so shipping it back and forth, making it, the materials, it's all very expensive. And so it would seem that there would be a lot of cost savings there to Yeah, for sure. Software. Yeah. I mean, I hope. I I will say, and I, I do say this a lot on the show, that money talks in this industry. And so the areas where I've seen the most sort of like technology creep in to my job as a buyer have been in the ways that are supposed to save the company money in the long term by making us <laughs> yeah. like buy, buy smarter, you know, or need, I mean, this is terrible, need less people on the team. Yeah. You right. Know? Yeah. And I know everything has that, you know, double-edged sword where it's like all these programs are great for reducing waste, but like, I hope they don't put pattern makers out of business. Ugh, I don't think they could. I don't think so. I feel like there's so much like finesse and wisdom there that you can't automate. But that that does bring up something. I got a listener letter, if you will, and I had there was a question here that I wanted to ask you. Mm. I get really excited when I get messages from listeners, and oftentimes it's on Instagram and asking me advice, and I'm I try to respond as fast as possible because I love talking to people. Uh, Elena sent me a really long 
email, which anyone can do, with a lot of questions. And I'm going to work my way through answering them over the next couple episodes. But she had a question that I specifically saved for you, Mary, which is about the automation of making clothes, right? Yeah. Us talking about pattern makers being replaced by software made me think of it. So this was her question. Why can't sewing be automated by robots? This question came from my partner after I told him everything he wears is handmade and he couldn't believe it. <laughs> Just like you and I were talking about, right? Oh we looked up a company called Sobo, which is developing sewing robots. Apparently, it's hard for robots to deal with soft materials. So their robot, this is so crazy. So their robot hardens fabric with polymers so it can be sewn by robots and then the polymers are washed off. Well, that's a red flag to me already. Yeah. There appear to be another number of other sewing robot companies. It would be interesting to understand why these technologies haven't taken off and been adopted yet. And if these solutions are good environmentally, I'm definitely worried about coating fabric with polymers and then washing them off. So am I. <laughs> right? So I I mean, you're the sewing expert here, but it would seem to me that how could a robot sew your clothes? I mean, it's so there's so much finesse involved. Yeah, that is disturbing and actually like that is news to me um that that anyone's <laughs> trying to develop that and like of course people are going to try to automate whatever they can um of course of course yeah i i was just comparing notes with a student i was working with who was new to sewing but has done a lot of like carpentry stuff and i was saying like man i'm so jealous like working with wood always seemed like it would be really great because I've always found fabric to be very deceptive. Like you can't trust fabric. You have to like outsmart it (laughs) because it's like, it's, it can be unpredictable. Like it's sometimes it's slippery. Sometimes it's too frayy. And like, Mm -hmm, I feel mm -hmm. like, I don't know. Yeah. Like how do you translate muscle memory into a robot? Because it has taken me, since I was 13, to be better at sewing, I'm not even going to say I'm the most amazing seamstress. Like, I like so much of what I make now as a 32 year old, I'm just starting to realize, like, wait, that was easier than it's ever been. That took me forever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know enough about robots to answer that question. Um, but that does sound like such a boyfriend thing to say, like, ugh, clothes are so unimportant. Why can't you just automate it? Yeah, yeah. And I think this, which we're about to get into, goes into our integral lack of understanding about sewing, right? As, yeah. as, a, whole, as a whole world at this point. So I will say, uh, to address Elena's question from like a more business side, I would be really shocked if robots sewing clothes would become the norm anytime soon. On one hand, I know that there has been this push to automate even more jobs in the wake of the pandemic because, Mm. you know, it would be safer to not have people involved. But one thing we have to remember about specifically the garment industry is that the people who sew our clothes are being paid next to nothing to do it. And mm-hmm. the expense is pretty minimal because we aren't paying these people a living wage. Meanwhile, right. bringing in some robots and spraying polymers on that then have to be washed off, that's going to add so much cost. I mean, first off, 
every factory would have to be reworked. They would have to tear oh, yeah. it down and start over, right? So that and the, that initial in, investment is going to we're we're talking years and years and years of garment maker wages. Yeah. It, you know, like that's the difference there. And then having to bring the fabric in and spray it with these polymers, Ugh. give it to the sobo to sew <laughs> oh, and then wash it back off. I mean, that's also additional cost there. And once again, clothes have gotten so cheap while companies continue to make so much profit off of them that they need to cut out every penny that they can. So yeah. I I mean, this is one of the reasons that more sustainable practices around making fabrics, washing them, et cetera, have not been put in place as much as they could because it's such an expensive shift. It would involve reworking all the factories. Now, five, 10 years from now, if we reached a point where the entire world got together and said, hey, you need to start paying garment workers a living wage, there might be more motivation for these factories to automate sewing. But even still, I just – I would be very surprised by that. Yeah, actually, the only thing that I can think of for that to work is that clothing design would have to fundamentally change so that maybe there's no curves and everything is a straight line made with like a felt fabric. (laughs) (laughs) We're all just wearing like weird felt like (laughs) tunics in the future. I mean, that is one version of the future that I've seen on Star Trek. So maybe. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we shouldn't rule that out. Yeah, all Um, our clothes would just be like square and rectangle. You get get a choice. If you're shorter, you get the square. If you're taller, you get the rectangle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Man, I don't know how I feel about that. Maybe it could be cool. It sounds comfy. Yeah. <laughs> it would yeah, it would definitely like take the pressure off of like, you know, body consciousness. It's just like what? <laughs> Everyone is either a square or a rectangle. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And it's just height based. It's like yeah. nothing personal. <laughs> right. Very interesting. Um but I I guess to partially answer her question, not so much with the sewing, like basically everything that leads up to the sewing, I think has been pretty successfully automated. And I'll give an example for anyone out there who's interested in starting a small brand. This is something I learned along the way, starting my own brand. Um, There's such a major shift between making that first prototype that is so expensive and then going into production where you have to make a certain number of the garment for the price to go down. And I was always like confused about what that difference was. And um, one of the major differences is that for the first prototype, someone is cutting out that pattern by hand, which is time consuming. You have to Mm -hmm. be very precise. And once you go into production, the way they do it is they... They digitize your pattern. So even if your pattern was made by a pattern maker on with paper and pencil as, as you know, during the development stage, um, they then scan that into a computer. They find a way to arrange the pattern pieces so that they take up the least amount of space within your fabric width. So you have to know your fabric width. Mm-hmm. Um, they print that out as a huge sheet. And then they stack layers of your fabric like super high. And then they put that pattern 
on top and a laser cuts out like a hundred layers of that fabric at a time. And that is like, like, you know, cutting down so much labor time. Mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. is like one of the biggest parts of why the production price is so much less than the sample price. So it's funny. I just feel like there's always this balance between doing something by hand and automating it. And I just think you have to have both for it to be sustainable. I oh, don't think I you agree. can go all the way in one direction or the other mm-hmm. to to try to make it more sustainable. I think there has to be both and it has to be just right. Agreed. Agreed. So I talked to a lot of people on social media about what's going on with garment workers overseas right now, which has been going on for a very long time. And everybody's solution is, well, we should just make everything in the United States. And that's we're not going to swing the pendulum the whole way to the other side. Like that's not sustainable either. There are people all over the world who need work in -hmm. order to live, right? We cannot Mm -hmm. take that. We're a global economy. And well, that's going going to take us to the next thing we're going to talk about anyway. But here in the United States, we don't have the skills to make clothes. So that's not the full solution either. Like it's not that simple. And I think the same way, like we can't take all the automation out of making clothes. I mean, it would become so expensive. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't change the way garment workers are treated. If we took away the laser cutting of fabric and someone had to cut it out by hand, they're not going to get a raise for that. You know, (laughs) we're just going to have even more people being exploited push to work faster and faster and faster for less and less money. Yeah, for sure. Right. Because you still have the same deadline. You know, that doesn't change. Right. So, right. So that brings us to what we're going to talk about next, which is the, the lost art of sewing. (laughs) So yes, (laughs) as it stands right now, we have almost no garment industry in the United States. I mean, over the last few decades, it has all moved overseas I would say the majority of garments that are made in the U.S. are made in L.A., and it is not always ethical. It is not always sustainable. In fact, it is frequently neither of those things. <sighs> and when we talk about, like, we need to bring it back, we need to bring back the jobs, like, I get that. I think it would be amazing if we were making more clothes in the United States. But right now in 2020, we do not have the skilled workforce. Very few people know how to sew. Very few people know how to cut out a pattern. Very few people understand how clothing is made at all. We've been so distanced from it. Part of that is globalism. And part of that is that sewing is no longer part of this the average American skill set. But it used to be. People used to make all their own clothes. Your mom would teach you how to sew, right? Oh, yeah. Your grandma would teach you how to sew. That doesn't happen anymore. How many houses even have a sewing machine in them at this point? Right. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> and we also don't know how to make take care of our clothing. Right. You know? So uh, we decided we wanted to talk about that today because I think how that happened and what a future could look like where we could all learn these skills, it's, it's, it's really exciting. It's a story that starts off dark and gets really <laughs> promising. So I talk a lot about on the pod about buying less and buying better. But if you don't know how to take care of your clothes, if you don't know how to do basic mending, if you don't even know how to do laundry or stain removal, which are things our grandmothers all knew how to do, maybe our moms, maybe not, definitely not my mom, how can we make our clothes last if we don't have these skills? Totally. So you had some really interesting 
thoughts about this, Mary, about how this lack of like education around fine motor skills is affecting children adversely. Yes, totally. So I this was brought to my attention by a New York Times article that um, was talking about our surgeons today, our top surgeons, were often the kids like building model airplanes and sewing, basically developing their fine motor skills from a very early age. And that is so necessary to like to be a good surgeon. And, you know, even starting with my generation as a millennial, like maybe as young children, we didn't have phones. But by the time we were in middle school, we were definitely all texting all day. And so, you know, Gen Z and beyond, like growing up with screens all the time, like there's way less working with your hands. And this is something that I've seen myself teaching younger kids. Um, And I don't want to make a blanket statement. Some kids are great at sewing, but a lot of the kids I've worked with young, even up to middle school age, what I've discovered is they're excited to learn about fashion and sewing but they get frustrated very quickly because they have no fine motor skills. They don't hold scissors correctly. Like just making a hand stitch is the most frustrating thing. I'm often the one like tying the knot at the end of the thread for them so that they can start. They can't like tie three knots on top of each other. And, and they, it drives them insane. Like they're, they just want to be able to make stuff and it's their hands. It's like watching someone whose hands have fallen asleep And like their fingers are just kind of heavy and they just can't quite make it happen. And like, it's, yeah, like that takes away so many like joys of working with your hands. If, if kids aren't like kind of working with their hands from a young age, like, and not Mm -hmm. just tapping a screen, but like building things and learning, learning little skills and you know, building that young makes it way easier to learn new stuff when you're older. Like you don't have to become a surgeon necessarily, but if you want to be able to just sew as a hobby, it's not going to be as easy. Totally. And yeah, I think that's a major loss for like humankind. Yeah. Kind of where we are because we have these amazing hands. (laughs) Right, right. And uh, when you and I were talking about this initially, I was like, you know, I learned how to sew in two places. One, and I, by the way, I'm not a master seamstress, okay? But I can rep- I can do basic repairs. I can sew an easy pattern. I am going to get frustrated, but I can do it. I learned how to sew in two places. One was in Girl Scouts. I want to say in first or second grade, we were learning cross-stitch. You know, mm. were we creating amazing works of art? No, but it made me comfortable <laughs> threading a needle, which is – terrible. Threading a needle is the worst, right? It made me comfortable following like a pattern for the cross stitch, uh, tying a knot, you know, all of those things that you are like important skills to sewing, right? And we would sew pillows out of washcloths and things like that. I mean, you know, like learning these basic skills that you could also take pride in. But then so I'm going to talk about home ec a lot, but home ec is where I really learned how to like use a sewing machine, um, among other things. So I was like, home ec, you know, interesting. Now, did you take home ec in school, Mary? 
No, it was definitely not offered at my New Jersey public school. So I talked to a bunch of my friends because I assumed that it was this universal experience that everyone was forced to take home ec in junior high. And what I found is that most of my friends had not unless they grew up in Pennsylvania where it was mandatory. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I feel feel very lucky that I had home ec. And so it was in – it was just in seventh and eighth grade. In high school, I think you could take electives in it. I remember there being a home ec teacher who taught all those classes. But I only took it in junior high as I was required. And you did a unit on sewing and a unit on cooking. And both were super valuable to me. So I was thinking about like how weird that a home ec was a universal experience for those of us who grew up in Pennsylvania, but not for people who didn't. And how integral it was to learning that these important life adult skills, right? So I told you, I was like, I'm going to figure out what happened to home ec. And it was a really exciting journey for me. Just something new that I learned. I love that I'm constantly learning new stuff for this podcast. I'm going to go on Jeopardy someday and just nail nice. it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so home ec now in 2020 has a new name and it's called Family and Consumer Sciences or FCS. And I read a a whole series of articles about this. It was fascinating. And one educator who was interviewed about this decline of these FCS classes said, we take it for granted that kids know how to wash dishes. And I thought that that was really interesting too, that home economics or as it's called FCS now, really teaches you like these life skills, right? So like I said, when I took home ec as a kid, it was cooking and sewing, how to make a shopping list for you know groceries, minor repairs of clothing, even how to use measuring implements to measure out stuff for a recipe, like how to follow a recipe, you know? Brilliant. <laughs> I know. These are things that we take for granted, but some people don't know that when like, for example, when you measure out brown sugar, you need to pack it into the measuring cup, right? And pack it right. the whole way and like smush it down with a spoon or your hand. <laughs> or you're not going to have enough in there. And I learned that in home ec. I wouldn't know that otherwise. My mom definitely didn't know that, you know? Or yeah. she did. She kept it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2012, which was the most recent data I could find on this, there were only 3.5 million students enrolled in FCS secondary programs, which was a decrease of 38% over a decade. And this decline is based on several things. And they all, I was, Mary and I were talking about this before we started recording. They all tie back to things that are ruining our entire society anyway. (laughs) I know. So first is the lack of teachers. Basically, there aren't a lot of jobs for this, so less people are going to school for it, so then there are less teachers. And it's this like vicious cycle. You used to be able to go to college and major in home ec, literally. You know, and and oh, actually, I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, it prepared you to either just run the best ho- household ever or be a home ec teacher. Next is the lack of budget. So, I can't believe this goes all the way back to the eighties, and you can blame Ronald Reagan for the decline in home ec education. In 1984, he signed the Carl D. Perkins Vocational and Technical Education Act. That's a whole lot of words there. What does that mean? Well, it required states to establish these technical committees of business and labor leaders to shape the school curriculum. And then this act also provided three quarters of the funding for these programs. So what does that mean? Well, long story short, this push 
schools to focus more on technical and career-focused electives because home economics was not seen as something that had like monetary value on the market. But robotics, industrial arts, graphic design, screen printing, typing even, like well now keyboarding, these were seen as like legit job skills. So basically they were saying, hey, home ec is women's work and it has no value. So our friend Toxic Masculinity ruined home ec, <laughs> right? You can thank Toxic Masculinity and the disregard for, quote, women's work for how none of us know how to sew or cook. And the idea of this education this new sort of direction in education was that you were taught how to be a worker, not how to live. And you and I were talking about this. I would argue that the general lack of sewing and cooking skills has pushed our entire economy into this like different direction where we need to buy more and more clothes because we don't know how to make or fix them. And we have to buy more and more takeout and go to restaurants because we don't know how to cook food. Definitely set us up for a really hard time during quarantine where suddenly people had to try to cook for themselves. Yeah, that's so true. And I was looking, I was thinking like, wow, I have over the years worked with so many people who don't know how to cook food at all, period. And I I fret about how they're doing during quarantine. Oh. Right? In 1970, and this was like the golden era of home ec education, Americans spent about 26% of their overall food budget on food away from home. So that would be eating at restaurants primarily, right? This is according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That figure increased to 43% by 2012 because nobody knows how to make food. And in 2014, (laughs) for the first time ever, Americans spent more than 50% of their grocery budget on, on food from restaurants and takeout. And this was the first time that their spending on food from outside the home exceeded their budget and spending for food prepared in the home. And it makes sense to me because also we saw the rise of these like fast casual concepts or like I know people who eat from sweet greens every single day or Chipotle or things like that, you know? It's like, oh, I'm going to stop at sweet greens on my way home from work and get my dinner. I'm going to eat something else from takeout from lunch. I mean – I'm going to have a juice for breakfast. Like we're literally only grocery shopping for like some snacks and beverages. Yeah. And, and I feel like that is very driven by living a life where you're never home because you're working at the office all day, Mm -hmm. every day. Right. And if you're not comfortable cooking, you're not going to come home and spend two hours making a meal and then having to wash the dishes and do everything else. I mean, you just don't have any workarounds for making food on your own. Um, And this like level of spending on outside food remains at that level. It may have come down a little bit in the early months of COVID, but we've seen takeout bounce back pretty considerably. Yeah. In general, according to the research I did, if you're under 40, the odds of having home ec classes when you were a kid is extremely rare. I grew up in Pennsylvania, like I said, so it was mandatory for me to have it. But I don't know anyone who took it as an elective in high school. Like I said, our school had a teacher. I remember seeing her in the hallway. (laughs) Uh, I think she also taught fashion design. Oh, wow. Your middle school sounds awesome. Another reason that HOMAC has kind of gone away, you can blame on another Republican president. 
uh, George W. Bush and his No Child Left Behind legislation. This prioritized testing scores over actual skills. So schools were forced to basically funnel all of their resources into programs that would ensure that their students could pass these standardized tests. Otherwise, they would lose their funding. Like they were, they had to basically. It was almost like they were, I don't know, like it was like oh a ransom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? You want to keep this school going? Then you got to pass these tests. Well, if you want to pass these tests, you got to put all your resources into it. And, you know, this also at the same time is when we really saw a decline in the arts education in public schools as well. So they go hand in hand. HOMAC and arts are are linked because they aren't seen as like job skills. Right. And you can't test for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, HOMEC started in the early 1900s as a way to professionalize domestic labor, giving women opportunities outside the home. And it was supposed to uplift the value of women's work in society. Although I'll say even when I was in junior high, taking that mandatory HOMEC class, it was sort of like the boys had to pretend that it was lame and embarrassing to do it, or they would like be social pariahs, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. It's so stupid. That toxic masculinity, it's it's everywhere, right? In, yeah. in the 50s, only about 1% of HOMAC students were boys. In 2013, it was closer to 35%, which I thought I was like kind of surprised by because once again, most states aren't mandating this. Right. I would like to see it be higher. I I think that you and I talked about this when we were prepping. When I started college, I was amazed by the number of people in my dorm who didn't even know how to do laundry. Oh. I know. Yeah. I was it seemed like every time I would go down to start a load of my clothes. Now I knew how to do my own laundry because I was like the latchkey child. I had to do everything for myself. <laughs> people like my fellow students would be down there like, how, where do you put the detergent in? When do you put it in? How does it work? What is fabric softener? What temperature should I oh, – should yeah. I I was about to say cook, but what temperature should I wash this on? <laughs> well, you don't want to cook your clothes, so it's, it's, no. relevant. it's important. And that was really shocking to me, but I realized that that is not unusual, that you – that today's kids don't know how to take care of their clothes. They don't know how to repair them. Certainly, they don't know about sewing. And this home economics education, now known as FCS, has evolved to teach a lot of other really important skills that I wish were mandatory, like sustainable eating, gardening, nutrition, personal finance, and relationships. And this is interesting to me. The idea is that these classes will bridge the gap for kids who might have two working parents who don't have time to teach them or may only have one parent who also doesn't have the bandwidth to do that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really cool. So you had a really amazing idea about creating these sewing centers in every neighborhood. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. So this is like a little fantasy I have for the future. Um, and it has come very much from my main job right now, which is a teacher at the New York Sewing Center, which is like basically a sewing school in the garment district of Manhattan and it's continuing education. It's just all ages. Whoever wants to learn how to sew or draw or pattern make or anything like that, they can take classes. Um, and working there has definitely 
like put me in a little bubble where it just feels like, wow, everyone in New York City wants to learn how to sew. This is awesome. <laughs> um, but but just being around people like every single day who are just learning how to sew and so excited about it, it just feels like we could really like I wish this could be so much more accessible because we're just one school. And it just got me thinking about that combined with one of my other jobs, which is as a teaching artist for the nonprofit St. Nick's Alliance. Um, And so they're a program that does, you know, everything from like housing to education to like uh, elder care. But um, they hire artists to teach after school classes to schools all over Brooklyn. It's an amazing program. And so um, I... I've been teaching like once a week a fashion club after school at a middle school in Bed-Stuy and that experience combined with the New York Sewing Center just makes me like it really makes me think about you know like America doesn't have like the sewing skills right now to have like a true garment industry in America again like this is how we would get there so even just outside of like teaching the kids skills the saint nick's alliance basically hires like so many young kids every year young meaning like teenage like late teenage and uh college age kids to be what is called group leaders and so they're people who are kind of in the school with kids all day, every day, they form relationships with these kids and they help, you know, the teachers keep them on track. And that's an amazing program because these really young people who maybe they, when they got this job, they like didn't have a career plan or they they were just trying to like have a part-time job. It gives them these amazing, uh, you know, opportunities to work with kids and most of the kids that leave that program go on to be teachers. And like, that's such a brilliant setup, like give kids Mm -hmm. a way to earn part-time money that teaches them a skill for life that gives them a career Mm -hmm. path. Like I, I wish I could do that with sewing. I wish that we could like make this a community. Like every community has a sewing center that serves the community where you can go get a part-time job. You will learn on the job. You'll make some money. You'll have a skill that could give you a future. And all at the same time, we could be making things that the community needs. And it could be as small as like a place to go buy tote bags for shopping, or Mm -hmm. it could produce uniforms for the local businesses that might need it. It wouldn't even have to be related to like a fashion brand or anything like that. It could just be a place in every community where you go and you can learn how to make something, get something fixed. It could just be this like multi-level place that that where people can come together. And I think I've definitely been um, fantasizing about this even more because of quarantine and I miss, you know, <laughs> being with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it's something that like, I definitely like, I don't know how I would make this come into being, but I just know I want to work there. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I love this idea. I mean, I was talking with my friend Jillian. We like to talk about 
just the incredible wealth disparity in this country and how like, especially now it's more extreme than ever with the pandemic. And we were, we started talking about sewing and I was like, you know, about a year ago, I decided I wanted to enhance my sewing skills because I'd gone to Japan. There were all this amazing fabric that I wanted to make clothes from. And I was like, my skills aren't there yet. And it would be like a waste of this amazing fabric. And I started to look at sewing classes. You know what? They're expensive, like really expensive. And we were talking about how sewing has become a leisure activity for people who have more money rather than a survival skill. I know it's kind of insane. And I mean, Cooking is sort of the same thing, right? Like you can take cooking classes, but they're going to be really expensive and luxurious. But if you are working class, you probably can't afford that or have the time for it. It's kind of going the same way as like physical fitness where that's also a luxury item. (laughs) Yeah. And and I I hate that these basic things are not accessible. Yeah. And this actually reminds me of what we were talking about when we were prepping for this um, I I do respect the title. What was it? Family and Consumer Sciences. But like, guys, we got to rebrand if we want this to come back. Like, like just sewing and cooking alone are such amazing creative outlets. Like, call it life arts. Yeah, and, I love that. And, actually, that sounds so yeah. 70s. Life arts. <laughs> but it is. And we're talking like, I mean, you and I were talking before about how kids don't learn like, like financial education either in school. You don't learn about what is credit? How do you have good credit? How do you manage your finances and make a budget? Like how do you prepare for your retirement even? You don't learn any of that stuff. You don't learn how health insurance works. You know, like yeah. you're like, okay, well now you're 18, so good luck out there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I still don't know. <laughs> I, and I think all of these life skills, these life arts are we're like failing everyone. I mean, and I'm talking even my peers, like we didn't, I had to teach myself about how finance works as an adult. And I, trust me, I learned it all the hard, bad way. And like cooking, I learned a little bit in school, but mostly my grandma just bought me a bunch of cookbooks and I learned from that. Uh, Sewing, you know, like I know very few people who even know how to hem a pair of pants. Right. You know, and so basically we don't know these skills. We're kind of forced into this crazy con- like loop of consumerism where we have to buy takeout, we have to buy new clothes constantly. We don't know how to maintain the clothes that we have so we- they wear out faster or they don't fit us right. We don't know how to alter them to make them fit ourselves and so we throw them out even sooner. I just – it's like – I went down a rabbit hole, like a mental rabbit hole last night in bed thinking like, is taking this education out of the schools part of a grander scheme to make corporations more profitable? (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but- I think that makes perfect sense. I know. I know. And it's sort of like the best way you can stick it to the man is learn how to cook and sew. Yeah, that's so true. And like, you're so right. Like none of this should be leisure stuff or like privilege stuff. Like, actually, there was a great article um, that kind of was focusing on, you know, food pantries and how so many more people are reliant on them right now during the, you know, the quarantine and the shutdown and everything. And the article followed like a couple different people who 
have never really had to go to food pantries, but have started going because they don't have jobs anymore. And they actually included like a bunch of photos sent in from people um, of dishes that they made with the food they got from food pantries. And they were beautiful. They like took time to plate them and everything. And like, just like everything looked really delicious. And it's like, you don't, you should not have to be rich to have that joy in your life. You should like, everyone should be able to like have those skills right off the bat so that you can enjoy that part of living, like cooking yourself a beautiful meal, making yourself a simple little garment, like, yeah, that should not just be for the privileged. Like everyone should be able to have that in their life. I I agree. And I think it's like a two-prong approach. One is, you know, getting this education to kids when they're young, right? And maybe that isn't going to be through the schools because the schools are so focused on these technical skills. And to be fair, schools have been struggling for a really long time. I think it it would be amazing. I'm, I'm getting really excited about this idea. I, I have no idea how to do this, but it's planting the seed to start an organization that provides these after-school programs for free or very low cost, kind of depending on like, like a sliding scale sort of situation that would offer cooking, sewing, other life skills, washing the dishes, doing laundry, these kinds of things, yeah. you know, taking kids to the grocery store and showing them how to shop and find the best deals you know, spend their money appropriately, get the most food for their value, you know, making a shopping list. I mean, these are things that like we take for granted, but not a lot of people don't know. Yeah. And actually I like this, I like this train of thought with cooking specifically because that's a great example of like this model that I'm fantasizing about for sewing, but in the food industry, because when you're in high school and you need to go get a part-time job, where do you go? A restaurant and you go work at a restaurant And I have been working at restaurants since I was old enough to work. And I still do. I still bartend. And that, you know, that's the exact model of job that I think I'm basing this off of, where you go completely unskilled, you get trained on the job, then you get interested Mm -hmm. in it. And you start learning about like ingredients you've never heard of and all that stuff. And you, you build a community around that. The people you work with at a restaurant are your family. And people often make a career out of what started as a high school part-time job. And next thing you know, they're like uh, Michelin star bartenders. Right. Right. Like, well, I want to do that with clothes. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like there's an opportunity to teach these skills to these kids when, I mean, when they're young, you know, start, start at the beginning. Like, like I said, in Girl Scouts, learning how to do cross stitch when I'm in like second grade. So I'm comfortable working with a needle. And when we were talking about like my Girl Scout experience and our like pre-call prep, I was telling you that Girl Scouts has completely changed their direction as well, where it's more about preparing girls for a career, especially in STEM. And I don't want to denigrate STEM. I think getting more women into that is so important. Yeah. But that means someone else needs to step in and teach these other skills. Like I think it's great that the Girl Scouts are preparing girls for careers, but it also sort of says like, hey, by the way, that's just women's work. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Like it still is, you know, it's like, no, this is more important. It's either career or you can sew and cook. You know, you can't you can't do both. And that's not true. Right. That's not true. And I think it's because 
you know, I, I did read a really intense think piece that I wasn't sure how to uh, break apart for the podcast, <laughs> but basically it was talking about, and I have mixed feelings about this, but how one of the sort of, I don't know, like negative side effects of the feminist movement is that all of these like life arts were pushed to the side because, you know, that was what women had been sort of imprisoned to doing for so long. It was their only option. They could only do this like housework. And so in order for women to push themselves out into the job market, into this very male-driven capitalist system where you're only worth – your only value and sense of self-worth is how much money you're making, right? Right. Is to cast aside all of these like home-related skills and go become a stockbroker or a scientist, a doctor, you know, whatever, a buyer, whatever. (laughs) And I thought that that was really interesting, but I hate blaming feminism (laughs) for our inability to cook and sew. So I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get too deep into that for the podcast. But I do think it's interesting. I mean, once again, it's like toxic masculinity. It's like your value is what you make and what you do. And the only things that are valuable are in this are in this category, not the things that keep us all alive, which is so ironic. Oh right? my God. Yeah. Another great example of a double-edged sword. It's like, okay, now women have more power in the workplace, but now we can't fix our clothes and cook our own food and it, and everything just gets more wasteful. And so like what's good for society tends to be bad for the environment and vice mm-hmm. versa. <laughs> it is. And I'm just like, where, where's the tipping point where we can not destroy the planet while also make, you know, these strides forward in society where people are equal and all have equal opportunities. Like where's, why can't we get there? I know. Why is it like, oh, you women want to have jobs? Well, guess why you're only eating sweet greens from now yeah. on. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I know. Like, no, it, right? the day is coming. The day I'm I'm so sure of it. And like I think so much is changing because of COVID. You know, despite that, we at the sewing center, we still had people signing up for virtual classes to learn how to sew like And so many more people wanted to learn how to sew because they wanted to make masks. And that's awesome. Yeah. And I, and I think getting to spend more time at home as unfortunate as that may be, um, allowed people to explore more of this. And I'm like shocked and amazed that even though New York is not back to normal, um, we're back to teaching in-person classes in a very limited way. And, you know, so many people who who are, you know, doctors and lawyers and finance people are coming to learn how to sew, men and women, um, and, and be able to fix their own clothes. And everyone, you know, at the beginning of every class, I ask people, like, I just want to get to know a little bit you and your goals and, like, what made you want to learn how to sew? And, like, mm-hmm. almost every single person has the same answer. And it's like, I never like how my clothes fit me. I hate being reliant on a, a like dry cleaners or a, um, alterations place. I just want to be able to do it myself because they're like alterations are so expensive. Oh my god, they are so <laughs> expensive. But it's like, but then when they go through the process of what they have to do to alter their own clothes, they're like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> well, and I think that's important too. So this like imaginary, hopefully 
becoming a reality organization that we're inventing right now (laughs) is also going to teach these skills to adults because it's never too late, right? And I think if we could all see the amount of work that goes into making our clothing and cooking our food, we might say, hey, why aren't we paying these people more? Because I do think we're so disconnected from where the things we need to survive come from that we don't understand why we're underpaying these people. We don't know we don't know that we are, I guess is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Yeah, and and it's hard to picture the work that goes into it until you do it. Like someone just wants to come and hem a pair of pants and I hand them a ruler and they're like, "Oh man, really?" It's yeah, like, it's the yeah. worst. <laughs> Get in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and you have to be really careful, right? Yeah, like it's not and- just going to be this fun, like, z- like zip it through the machine and you're done. Like, it <laughs> never works like that. Yeah, yeah. So I think step one to us getting to a point where all workers are paid a living wage is understanding the work involved, and we'll buy less stuff. If we can make it and care for it and repair it ourselves. So these skills are so important. You know, even going back to food, think about all the takeout containers that are in landfills. Major. Yeah. If we could all cook our own food, there would be quite a decline in that. Yes, it would change the restaurant industry for sure. Also, if we all stop buying fast fashion, theoretically, these fast fashion brands are going to go out of business too. That's okay. The economy will react. There was once a time where everybody only listened to the radio. That was their sole form of entertainment, right? It was replaced by the television. So yes. Did the people who worked in the radio factories lose their jobs? Yes. But they got different jobs because technology created new opportunities like making televisions. Yeah. And honestly, if, you know, if we find that balance, you know, that like, more people knowing how to sew is just more jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and what I like to fantasize about another one is more brands. And that's something that, again, I live in the bubble of like Brooklyn and uh, it feels like everyone wants to start a little brand. Um, and this is a- another thing that I think could be such an exciting part of the future. Like the bright thing that comes out of this is like, if more people know how to sew, like everyone has ideas about what they want clothes to look like. If if there could be like, um, you know, brands that that pop up just all over. And I guess I should just narrow this down to New York City um, for now, just as my idea. Like, I feel like certain neighborhoods would become known for like the designers working and selling from that neighborhood. And that would kind of bring back that originality um, that I feel like we've lost where every major city has the same exact stores. And like, it used to be exciting. Like when (gasps) I was a teenager or college aged um, top shop was only in London and it was like, wow, like I can't believe you have something from top shop. You went all the way to London to get that. And now it's like, everywhere and i would love i think it would benefit the fashion industry so much to like break down all these huge places and just have like all these tiny little brands and that way like you know we could and this you know i might be just totally in a like covid fantasy right now but like 
Like, imagine <laughs> if like seamstresses could work from home because they're working for a designer who, you know, just operates solely out of one neighborhood and, you know, they could watch their kids if they had to because they're sewing from home and then they, you know, walk or drive to the design studio, which is above the store. And, and that way, like, if we're ever able to travel again, you know, you could go somewhere and actually get something special again. And I think this also ties in to these kids in middle school learning how to sew. Like, they're excited because they have so many ideas and they have really cool ideas. And can you imagine, like, in middle schools, instead of, like, the clicks being about popular kids, it's, like, the clicks being different brands and these kids coming up with like their own logos and their own style and then representing themselves in that way and like selling it like a lot like I one of my students is 13 and she has a Depop store like it's it's so accessible now and that could be such an amazing Mm -hmm. direction for the fashion industry like if you want street style like you don't have to get it from like I don't know I mean, I I don't want to say off-white because off-white is awesome. But, like, imagine off-white, like, imagine an off-white in every neighborhood. (laughs) Well, and I think you really touched on a good point there. You know, I I did some reading about the state of the fashion industry as it is now. And 97% of the profits made by the fashion industry are made by 20 companies. And that's globally. 20 companies are basically running the industry. And yes, these are huge corporations that have tons of brands under their umbrella. I think that's something that a lot of people don't know is that a lot of brands are actually controlled by a parent company. I mean, the the most basic one that probably most people would know is that, you know, Gap also owns Banana Republic, Old Navy, Athleta. Am I missing anyone there? Um, I have no idea. I didn't. But anyway, I mean, those brands. Yeah, see, there you go. So they're all they're all owned by the same company, and so that one that gap is one of the brands that's in the top twenty of the whole world. Wow. And so there's a lot of that, even in the luxury realm. Most luxury brands are owned by one or two conglomerates. And what has that done? Well, one, it has allowed these brands to name their price when they're working with factories and really push them which pushes down wages for garment workers. But two, it sort of killed the diversity of the industry where we're seeing kind of just the same stuff all the time. Totally. It's very watered down. You know, I worked for a big corporation that had multiple brands under its umbrella that were all ostensibly very different, but they all shared a creative director. And so what you would see is the same trend at every brand, even though these brands all served different customers in terms of age and kind of interests and demographics. It would be like all of the brands are carrying bike shorts right now. Really? Like, I don't know if that's appropriate. And so you would see that like cross-pollination. And I think what's really happening is we're seeing that cross-pollination across the entire industry. So everybody's selling the same stuff. Like everybody right now is like, we only sell sweatsuits. That's it. That's all we do. Well, really? Because... I think people are getting over wearing sweatsuits right now, you know? (laughs) And there's just like – it's like the fashion began as like a creative expression. Like, yes, clothing is a basic need. We need it to stay warm and protect ourselves from the elements. But fashion began as the creative expression 
of those clothes, right? So it's an art. It's an art form. But that's kind of gone away. And it's become a business. It's become an industry. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of innovation or creativity there anymore. And when I say that, I don't mean – don't mean to denigrate all of the amazing designers and product developers out there who are creating product constantly and innovating in that way. But even they are sort of reined in by what upper management wants them to do. You know, if they were allowed to make whatever they wanted, what we would see in stores right now would be really different. Yeah, and that's so true. we live in this era, right? Right. And we live in this era of like just chain stores, you know? Yeah. It's like that's who is – I mean, I, I've heard the same thing is kind of happening for restaurants in the era of COVID where there's a lot of fear that when we finally get to go back to normal life, only the big chain restaurants are going to be left behind. I'm so like scared. All, all, I mean, I know. I'm at, so I think you got to take that metaphor to clothing as well. So imagine if the only place you could ever go out to eat from now on is Applebee's, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Well, imagine if the only place you could buy clothes in the future is Gap because they have the cash flow to stay around. And so that's really terrifying, right? And so I I guess what I'm saying, like, if we could teach more of these skills and empower people to use clothing as a creative expression again, we could see all of these new brands all over the place that reflect the people who make them. Because we also know that the fashion industry does not reflect who we are anymore. You know, if you're not white, thin, and rich, and beautiful, they're not interested in what you either who you are, you know? Right. And yeah, that goes back to your episode about about sizing, which I thought was so brilliant. And like, it's funny because more people being able to sew and, and make their own clothes. It's like in order to create the future, we're kind of going backwards. And it's funny to think about the past of fashion design and clothing, because I think it's important that you made the distinction between fashion as a creative expression and clothing, which is a human necessity. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go all the way back in fashion history, uh, you know, the fashion industry started being shitty in ancient Egypt. (laughs) Wow. Um, There's an amazing, amazing book that I wish could be part of like school curriculums called Women's Work, The First 40,000 Years. And it starts with the invention of thread Mm -hmm. and like string. It mostly focuses on weaving and, and the development of weaving from like starting with nomadic people and then going on to when people started settling in places permanently and women were able to develop like different weaving techniques to the point where they were making these just like wildly intricate designs with like different colored strings and threads which was also a pretty recent development and And it started looking so amazing and garments and just woven fabric in general started being so valuable to every single little like village that that's when villages started really fighting with each other because they would um, like, you know, just like kidnap women in the fields to make them come add to their weaving (laughs) workforce (laughs) and all the way to like 
the like big royal industries around ancient Egypt, um, like it got to the point where in order for them to keep, you know, their status, they had to be producing just a ton of woven goods. And in order to create that much with their like very primitive, like tools they're working with, um, they just had to have like so many weavers weaving at a time. They would like lock women in a room oh and not God. let them out until they were like done weaving things and they had to produce so much that they couldn't do the intricate techniques anymore. It just had to be kind of straightforward. And it's like, yeah, fashion, the fashion industry has been awful for a pretty long time. Yeah. But I think we could get back to that like <laughs> village lifestyle where, you know, we stretch a loom on one of our walls and, and, you know, make something amazing. And that is probably so unrealistic, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know what? I mean, things have to change and change is hard, but, and it's not going to happen if we don't push for it. I mean, I think we've seen during the pandemic that it's only like the mega corporations that have been doing well. And that's, it doesn't seem like anybody should be doing that well right now, right? So yeah, when you I hear know. about someone like Amazon making just like billions of dollars in profit off of the pandemic, it's disgusting, you know, when so I many know. people have lost so much. No, that they're one of the worst. If you're listening and you want to go in on this organization with me and Mary that is going <laughs> to teach people the life arts, people of all ages and make them accessible and totally change our world, then you should reach out because I'm just assuming that you, Mary, also don't know anything about running a nonprofit because neither do no. I. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I actually mentioned this idea to my aunt and she was like, you know what goes into running a nonprofit, right? You have to like talk people up to get their money. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. I'm not doing me, that. Me, me neither. <laughs> but I bet there are people out there who are listening who love that, who is like, that's my favorite thing to do. And yeah. you should get in touch with us because I would be happy to do anything else. You want me to make copies, uh, take out yeah. the trash, you know, whatever. Right. Paint the walls. I don't care. I'll do all of that. But the asking people for money, not my strong suit. No, I won't do it. Yeah. (laughs) So you also brought up a good point. We talked about people learning to embrace the idea of their clothes over time, not looking like what they were when they bought them, you know? Yes. So this is a major one that comes up. So one of the classes at the New York Sewing Center is an alterations workshop where you've got two hours, you bring in a couple of garments that you'd like to alter, mend, change in some way, and we teach you the basics of sewing if necessary, and then we teach you kind of the basic ways you can alter a garment. So like we focus a lot on hemming um, and mending tears, and then the rest of the time is just spent like you figuring out how you want to fix your garment and practicing. And it's a really fun class, but it's one of the most difficult classes because people's expectations are so high and it's very hard to manage people's expectations so that they understand like, this isn't going to look like the factory did it. And that's okay. Especially if I just taught you how to sew. And yeah, that should be a positive, like, because If you're interested in doing something with your hands at all, I feel like most likely you're a somewhat creative person. So like, why not put your own stamp on your clothes 
and make it unique? Why would you want it to look exactly the same when you could make it look specifically yours? And actually, Danny, from your earlier episode, who's my dear friend and freelance employer right now, (laughs) because I'm doing some of the sewing for her. She reminded me that there's the saying in Japanese culture, wabi-sabi, where it's like, love the imperfections Mm -hmm. or the imperfections are beautiful. And I think that's like, I, I, I hope more people can kind of um, embrace that because that's, that should be a really big part of fixing something like it's never going to be perfect the way it was before. Or I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes it's pretty straightforward, but I think that's something that could make alterations less daunting and more accessible. Like, okay, like you want to change it in some way, like embrace that change, make it interesting, make it fun. Mm -hmm. And that definitely got us on the topic of like what clothes look like in the future. (laughs) I mean, this is one of my favorite (laughs) things to talk about because we've seen a lot of different versions of future clothes in pop culture, like since the 60s, you know, and it's always – we're all kind of wearing uniforms in those versions, right? (laughs) Yeah. Don't you think it's amazing how the 60s version of the future is now just the accepted version? Like it it has not varied too much from that since the 60s and it's now 2020. Like we're in the future and we're still thinking of it like we were in the 60s. Although I think it's important to – notice that there are always two very distinct options when we envision the future and pop culture. And so one of them is that 60s version, almost like that um, Paco Rabanne or, yeah, I think it was him that was a big part of this. But everything is very shiny and, like, stiff and uniform-like. Synthetic. I think that's really important. Yeah. That version of the future, we're all definitely wearing polyester all the time. For sure. Yeah. There's no, there's no way that it's anything else. Yeah. Like everything is like homogenous, like the suits match the interior, which is just very sterile. Everything is sterile, monochrome. But it's not gender neutral. I think that's really important to call out too, because it still has this very retrograde idea of men and women. And so the men are wearing more like you know, they're wearing pants, like unitard yeah. type of stuff. And women are always wearing a short dress. Right. Like we, like that version of the future, we haven't gotten past that. No, not so much. <laughs> um, well, except I read this thing about that HBO show Raised by Wolves, which I actually haven't even watched, but the article was re- really interesting because it did call out the costume. So it's about androids and the androids always have on these like, super shiny skin tight suits and the showrunner Aaron Guzikowski was quoted saying that the actors should be credited as stunt people for wearing those outfits every day because they were made of latex like how uncomfortable (laughs) is that oh so sweaty and like (laughs) you have to powder yourself to get into them I mean I can't even imagine I feel like you you would feel like you couldn't yeah But then there's the other (laughs) option, which I think is so much more fun. Um, The like Mad Max uh, fifth element kind of look where it's like, (laughs) you know, just dirty rags and they're tied around your body. And like, to me, that's like 
there's just so many more opportunities for design in there. Um, Tank Girl is uh-huh, a great example. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, where it's just like, you know, you just patch together whatever you can. It's very much like whatever is available, you just like make it work. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. And it's more individual and creative. Totally, because it's like what is in your surroundings? Like use that however you can. It's it's very like sustainable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I So I guess I would love to hear what uh, the listeners think about what their future style is going to be like. It's yeah. weird to think, you know, talking about like the 60s view of the future, often that period, that future they were talking about is supposed to be right now. Yeah. And I, you know, the last time I checked the seventies were still popular. I (laughs) I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think there are little glimpses of, of that future being the reality right now. Like one thing that I love noticing is that I think it's just a thousand times more common for girls to have pink hair now Mm-hmm. than it was when oh. I was in like high school. And I think that's such an awesome direction for the future to take. Mm-hmm. I think there's little things here and there that make me feel like, whoa, yeah, I'm in a sci-fi movie right now. <laughs> totally. And I do think we're going to go that more like Mad Max direction. Yeah. I kind of see that where it's going. Yeah. And that future, like minus the clothes is scary, but I think the clothes they got right. <laughs> <laughs> they got good. They got, they became simultaneously u- more utilitarian, but also more customized yeah. to wear. And I like that. My friend Kim sent me an article last week about, and I laughed, but someone was like, are wearing blankets outside the next fashion trend? And <laughs> I was like, this is like going that Mad Max direction. Oh, yeah. We're, we're wearing a blanket with like a belt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm down. I'm so down. Me too. Down. It sounds cozy. Yeah. <laughs> I just think there's so many amazing opportunities out there that could just change the way we think about clothes and it could be so much more fun than it is right now. Yes, it's not fun. No. Getting dressed is supposed to be fun and it's just like – I mean, first off, if you wanted to buy brand new clothes right now, there's like from any of the big brands, there's nothing interesting to buy. Uh, Fortunately, there are all these other amazing small business designers out there who are making really cool shit right now, like the most innovative and interesting stuff and being really resourceful and sustainable. The other thing is that like if you go shopping for new clothes right now, the like psychic weight – of knowing what a shit show that industry is. Like, how can you even enjoy it? So once again, it's like, make your own clothes, buy a second hand, or buy from one of these amazing small makers who are making just the coolest, most unique stuff that you can find right now. Yeah. Like that's that's what you gotta do. (laughs) Yeah. Buy from Mary. Mary, what is the Instagram account for your brand? Ah, it's Susan New York Design. And you might have to scroll past a bunch of uh protest posts to see any of the clothes. (laughs) But it's still alive in a very small way. But yeah, I I definitely have embraced the upcycled design world where I work with secondhand clothes and I add, you know, silk applique and special buttons and change up the shapes and the fit. Um, So I'm trying to keep it as 
sustainable as possible. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's like a really great way for people who want to start a brand to get into it. Like, don't feel like you have to learn how to make a shirt from scratch. There's hundreds of men's button up shirts sitting in Goodwill that, you know, are just a playground. Mm -hmm. There are endless things you can do to those. Mm -hmm. And then you can look like you're in Mad Max. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I think that is a really valid point. There is a surplus of materials and already existing garments out there that you can make your own. Yeah. Yeah. And it's super fun. And it's something that often you can do like while watching TV, like doing some hand (laughs) stitching with a good show. Nothing better. A little glass of whiskey. Yeah, I mean, this is sounding pretty cozy to oh, me. Yeah. I definitely want to do that tonight. Yeah, do it. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you too, why is your brand called Susan? Oh, I named it after my mom. Oh, see, I I had a feeling, but I wanted everyone to hear yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is the first one who taught me how to sew. And she is also responsible for my obsession with clothes. She indulged us so much in like back to school shopping and those were, you know, such a big part of forming my obsession with clothes is is shopping with mom and getting so excited about it. So yeah, named it after her. This is all her fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I guess my final thought is I know that like hearing some of these facts can just be such a bummer, but like, I hope I hope hearing this stuff sparks exciting creativity for ideas for the future, because I feel like it definitely has gotten me down in the past. Um, But I think there's just like the most amazing opportunities just waiting for us specifically with how we dress ourselves. And I think, you know, it's one of the really positive things that can can come out of the horrible shit show that we're in. I, I mean, I 100% agree. You know, like this this year, I mean, I think we've all universally agreed, has been a nightmare, yep. right? And we've all lost so much, whether it was like, you know, our jobs, our sense of stability, our sense of well-being, our sense of safety. But you know what? This is our chance to like hit reset and learn from what's happening right now and do better in the future. And I think the more people know – why things are wrong now, the more of us there are to make it better in the future. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That's our pep talk for you all. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us and sharing all your expertise. Oh, thank you for inviting me to talk on your show. I love this podcast so much. I listen to it as I sew for Danny. (laughs) It has made me feel so justified in my feelings towards the fashion industry. And it has taught me so much that I didn't know. So like, thank you for doing this. And like, I know you dedicate so much time and effort to it. And like, I hope that this becomes one of those mainstream podcasts, like my dad wrote a porno or something where (laughs) everyone (laughs) knows and learns. Yeah. I mean, that would be amazing. I love doing this. It's like I've been more excited about this than anything in my adult life. You know, like coming to work on this every day is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I hope that it does become a mainstream podcast so I can get paid to do it. Yeah. And I don't have to get a dumb job. So yeah, anyway. (laughs) Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. This was awesome. Thank you, Mary. Amazing. 
had forgotten what Mary said about the podcast at the end and it made me tear up guys. I'm so grateful for the positive feedback and encouragement I received from all of you. It's been such a strange, lonely year. It's still a strange, lonely year, but meeting all of you has made me so happy. So thank you so much. Thank you to Mary for being such an amazing guest, for hunting me down, for reaching out, and for making me really think about the importance of sewing as a key component in, well, changing the entire state of fashion for consumers, for companies, for workers, for the community. I would love to hear all of your thoughts on this and any suggestions for resources to learn sewing because... Going to a sewing class now is a little bit more challenging, but I'm sure some of you have some favorite YouTubers or books out there that you'd like to share with the rest of us. As I was editing this episode, I was struck by this idea of forming little chapters all over the country, kind of like Girl Scouts, but maybe for adults, that would make learning sewing and mending like an accessible and affordable option for all of us. Because once again, sewing classes are expensive. Who's interested? Are you? As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm still thinking about creating a virtual community for all of us to discuss things like this. So more details to follow. I'm just kind of trying to figure it out. I'm still thinking Facebook, although Slack is an option too. I think I've just had two very traumatic jobs that relied on Slack, and it kind of gives me very uncomfortable, sweaty anxiety to even think of looking at that user interface again. But sewing is the future, so let's figure out how to make this happen together. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And please share with a friend. That's how we change things, you know, by educating more and more people. I mean, what if we got everyone in on this plan to teach our communities to sew and mend? Imagine what a game changer that would be. Well, We get there by, you know, getting more people to listen to our ideas. So tell a friend. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares, hearing your encouragement and suggestions, and of course, most importantly, knowing your favorite Bath & Body Works fragrance. I also love answering your questions. By the way, if you ever want me to share a source for statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, get in touch. I have the world's biggest bookmark folder. And, you know, while I'm not a journalist, I'm very committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? Drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Also, if you have a question, hit me up. I love researching the answer. And don't forget, we also have the Clothes Horse Hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call. Even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random, I would love to hear about what your futuristic personal style will be or your feelings and experiences with Bath & Body Works. Also, if you're one of those people, which... I'm one of those people that has a lot of anxiety about calling a stranger on the phone. Don't worry. The close horse hotline goes straight to voicemail. So you'll never have to talk to me. (laughs) Also, 
I just wanted to mention that I've been getting nonstop emails from eBay about various, quote, vintage fragrances of Bath and Body Works up for grabs thanks to all of my in-depth research. It makes me laugh every time I open my email. But you know what? I do it for the fans, all right? It's worth it. Also, don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, weird things that we think are funny. This week, we're sharing our tips for a better fall winter quarantine. And I would say that we are definitely experts at that area because we're both homebodies. So check it out. And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 